0: Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher, And today we are going to have a conversation about expanded carrier screening, a phrase that refers to the move from targeted screening that was aimed at a certain population or certain populations designated as high risk to a one-size-fits-all test that does not use population or race or self-defined ancestry to predetermine what genes to examine. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invite. At the same time, as the term suggests, expanded carrier screening vastly expands the universe of what is examined and creates a bigger is better panel in what has become a competitive and high-stakes industry. So, in some ways, this feels very uncontroversial. Don't use race or ancestry as a proxy for genes. That's a good idea. Test for more things and identify more at-risk couples. All good. To this end, the ACMG produced a new set of guidelines this summer advocating that everyone, every pregnant individual or uh, preconception setting, be offered ECS. Given that multiple sources have Uh, shown that race is a terrible proxy for genes, and uh, as the American College of Medical Genetics, ACMG, said, uh, using race or ethnicity amounts to inequitable and scientifically flawed testing. Um, It seems like a positive step, but there's always a but. You saw a but coming there. Here it is. Giving everyone the same test is not necessarily the same thing as giving everyone the same medicine, Uh, some of the differences are baked in because our data sets, wait, have you guys heard this? Have you guys heard this before? Yes, our data sets are not diverse. And so some of the inequities are baked right into the test. ACMG can suggest that everyone be given testing, but there are other structural obstacles to universal use. And expanding panels is not a neutral step. And some people are saying that ACMG guidelines themselves are problematic in how they define what belongs on the panel. So saying some people are saying is a very weaselly thing to say, isn't it? None of that McCarthyite bullshit here on the Beagle. In fact, it, the publication following the publication of the ACMG guidelines, DNA Exchange members Katie Stoll and Bob Resta, the some people in 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 I had in mind both of whom have taken on their own profession before in the interest of ethical practice, posted a critique of ACMG's process, language and recommendations. We have Katie with us today representing the duo. Katie Stoll, genetic counselor, is executive director of the Genetic Support Foundation, a nonprofit organization with a mission to increase access to independent genetic counseling services and information about genetics and health. Katie has diverse clinical experience, and a great track record in holding commercial laboratories to account for the ways in which their marketing and test design fails our patient population. Also joining us for this conversation is Barbara Harrison. Barb is also a genetic counselor and an assistant professor at Howard University, where she teaches graduate students, medical students, and medical re- residents in various specialties in the areas of genetics, genetic testing, genetic counseling, and ethics. Barb also has varied clinical expertise and has been an outstanding voice in the genetic counseling community on issues related to diversity, inclusion, and medical equity, including, and this is a public service announcement relevant to this topic today, but really I I urge you to check out her recent talk on how inequity has impacted care for sickle cell disease that was given at last week's NSGC annual conference. It was fantastic, and if you have access to that, anyone, you can catch it in and didn't catch it in real time, and you can get a hold of the recordings, by all means, listen to it. Um, can't miss. So, Barb and Katie, welcome to the Beagle.
1: Thank you. We're happy to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks for inviting us to be on. Uh, so, my first question, sort of, really is the question I asked in the intro transition away from targeted screening. Barb, I think I'm going to throw this to you first. Which use race as a proxy for genes. In other words, targeted screening of Ashkenazi Jews or Black Americans or any other group um, to this expanded, untargeted screening. It's basically a good thing, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that on on the surface, maybe a little deeper than that, um, the. The thought to not have ethnicity-based screening is a good step. It's a positive step. Um, we know that that practice in the past has um, really left out individuals that should have been screened or might, you know, benefit from screening, um, be, you know, left out of that. Um, you know, I think a, a great example is actually within sickle cell and hemoglobinopathies, you know, not offering Hemoglobin electrophoresis to individuals just because they aren't self-identified as being African American or from the Mediterranean area, um, I think, was a shame. So you know, I welcome this effort to um, to broaden our scope about who we offer testing to. hmm
0: mm-hmm. So, um, but 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 these tests have. A certain amount of baggage um, by offering the same test to everyone. Will that solve most of the problems of unequal care? Uh, I,
1: so you know, it's it, it, that's a different question, right? Yeah. So, and I think it gets to the crux of does making a test available to everyone is that equivalent to equity? And I think that's really where the the discussion begins, um, because we don't have the same type of information about, you know, the diversity of various of variants and so forth um, in different populations. And so even though we might offer a carrier screening, we may not really be able to analyze what those results mean if the information isn't there in the literature to support it, and if that information in the literature has been done on certain populations, then the ones that have been marginalized, the ones who have not been included, are not going to get that same level of benefit.
0: Right, right. So understudied populations are more likely to have a variant of uncertain significance, for example. Yeah. Ex- mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. No, please.
1: No. Yes, absolutely. You know, I was just even it's going through the ACMG recommendations, um, you know, and suggesting a diagnostic procedure when the partner is not available for testing. So essentially, you know, you're going to just, to me, almost do a research project on a fetus (laughs) to see what you may come up with. And you may come up with a variant and you don't know what it means. And so now you've put you know, a woman through a invasive procedure to what good? Right, um, you know, and yes, she has the option, but what's implied by us even offering it, you know, which of course is a whole other scope of conversation.
0: But well there's 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 so many pieces to this, right? Because yes. I had a conversation with somebody who practices in Texas and she was revamping in real time uh, the expanded carrier screening conversation because why ask somebody to spend hundreds of dollars on a test if you know you brought up if, if they don't have the partner, if you're not going to be able to get the full information so you don't to know if the couple's at risk but also if there's then nothing you can offer them if they're not able to leave the state, um, are we wasting people's time? So this testing it may be a better test, but it still happens in the context of people that have a lot of obstacles. Kate, Kate, did you want to say something to this um, notion of uh, a research project in real time?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say that's um, that's going to be true across the board with expanded carrier screening. I mean, not only do we have uh, not unequal information about um, genetic variants across populations, but I mean, really, this is this is a, a grand experiment of population screening for many really rare conditions for which we've never done. So, um, there's all, I mean, for, for anybody going through this testing, I think there's a greater likelihood of finding a variant that we might not know or have ever seen being associated with the condition that we're talking to our patients about. Um. Yeah, I... Um-
0: I I, recently, fairly recently, um, my own daughter-in-law was talking about getting pregnant and I I, I very much like I arranged for her her carrier screening and I was like, "Uh, I'm not going to name any names. And I'm like, I don't want the smallest test, but I also don't want the biggest test because I knew her personality and I knew that if she found out that she was a carrier for something that was like incredibly rare and we knew nothing about, it would weigh on her tremendously and yet, what are you going to do with that information if you really don't know what the condition, you know, what the natural history of the disease is, the carrier frequencies, like, how is it actually likely to affect any given individual, right? There's a lot. There's a lot. That was what I worried about, That's.
2: scenario. I mean, Laura, that's, I think that's most things on these big expanded panels. Honestly, I mean, there's a lot. There's more we don't know than um, that we do know.
0: So here's what I'm worried about. In this in this particular narrow bit piece here is is that these tests mm, they were first introduced in like 2011 2012 right mm-hmm. the first big carrier screening panel relatively new it's less than a, less than 10 years old and it's now a three billion dollar annual industry worldwide um, and if you're selling a panel you're probably going to keep adding conditions because that sounds good, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, it, it to me, it brings back, look, not memories. So it hasn't been that long ago, but, you know, when cell free testing came on the market and, you know, it started with aneuploidy, then it went to microdeletions, <laughs> then it went to, you know, we're going to do whole genomes. Um, And so but when cell free first came out in 2014, you know, there were several reports of inaccurate information that patients thought that providers thought um, that impacted decisions. Um, And at least some of that misinformation or. Um misconstrued, misunderstood information, was coming from the websites of labs that were advertising their product. And the information that was on there might not have been incorrect, but it was easily misconstrued. And my concern comes in when we look at ECS with the fact that even though as genetic counselors, We understand the intricacies of this information. You know, once something is supported by ACMG, and, you know, I think we can imagine that ACOG may not be far behind, that is going to be in the hands of health providers who are not trained like we are. And not only not trained in in the intricacies of carrier screening from, you know, that genetic procedure perspective, but who is having that conversation with the patient? But we pride ourselves in taking the time to have that conversation around what are you gonna do with this information? Is it gonna be valuable? But if, at least in my experience, where CF and SMA screening has gone, you know, I have patients come to me all the time not even knowing that test has been done. So clearly, no one had a detailed conversation.
0: Yeah. And also, I think when you talk about the inequities within the population and the data and so on, um, where you could take a more common rare disease like CF and go deeper, meaning add more, more mutations, look at more information from, for pathogenic or likely pathogenic results, Instead, you add other conditions on um, that are incredibly rare and very, very likely, unlikely, sorry, to identify at-risk couples. But now your list of conditions that you look at is longer, um, and people are less likely to look at that, more likely to look at that, less likely to look at residual risk by population, which is probably a much more important metric for most individual couples. Um, And the The playing out of that is CF is natively more common in white Americans, but the percentage of CF patients in people of color is actually rising, the percentage Mm of people of color, because they're more likely to get picked up on screening panels for all sorts of reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh Um, One thing that really startled me was seeing that people of color – I saw this statistic fairly recently. People of color are about 8% of the CF population, but like 40% of the population for whom there is no treatment. Yes. Um, which is stunning, right? Yeah. Just-
1: right, because, uh, you know, my, I'm not a CF expert, <laughs> but my understanding Here. is that you know many of their medications are based, which is great, but it's based on the mutation that you have. And so the, um, you know, the research that has been done has been on those more kind of quote unquote common mutations. And so the individuals of color that may not have those more common mutations, or at least the ones that are not as well researched, don't have the benefit of those same pharmacological options, because that's just not where the research dollars have been. So, you know, you're... You know, it's so another example, of course, of an inequity. You can do all the testing you want, but that doesn't equal equity.
0: Right. No. This is what I was saying when giving mm. someone the same test is not giving someone the same medicine. Right. Exactly. Giving someone the same medicine is when the test works the same way for everybody, uh, which it which doesn't. Um, so, has developed this tier-based system as a way of describing these different, as a part of the article, they talked about a tier-based system um, and distinguishing and and, and tier three is what they recommend be offered to all patients. And that involves tier three is testing for conditions with what they call a severe or moderate phenotype and carrier frequency equal or greater than one in 200. Um, And they envision this as a Curated list of conditions that will continue to evolve over time. So, that part makes sense to me that it will change over time. And uh, tier one would be uh, high risk based on risk assessment, which is what we're trying to get away from, right? Tier one involves predetermining who's at higher risk and giving them um, testing. And uh, for a number of reasons that we talked about at the top of the show, That's less effective. So tier two is a higher carrier frequency, which means you'd catch more people, but overall only getting conditions where the carrier frequency is over one in a hundred, which is how it's defined, would sort of limit the number of couples that you would pick up. So uh, Katie, I want to ask you, uh, what do you think about using carrier frequency as a selection criterion?
2: Oh, I, I mean, I can I can appreciate the logic that ACMG had in, in trying to draw a line there. Um, the one in two hundred. Um, I mean, ACOG had previously previously suggested the one in hundred threshold might be a reasonable uh, place to draw that line, and ACMG and the supplemental data for the guideline suggested that by lowering that to one in two hundred, uh, they would um, increased the identification of carrier couples by about six per 10,000 in the U.S. population. So, that was uh, part of the justification for for increasing to that. Um, I will say, I mean, just when you're talking about residual risk, like what is the likelihood of of having a baby with one of the conditions that we're talking about if people have a, a negative carrier test? Um, I think a couple of things I just wanted to mention on that line. Um, one is that I think it's a really, it's very, very common for people to be found to be a carrier with these carrier screening tests. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call out any labs by name in this, but um, but one lab recently um publicly stated that they expected 65 to 75 percent of people undergoing their carrier screening panel would test positive for something. But the likelihood that the partner would also be a carrier is pretty small. And I know your audience might um, be good ones to fact check this, but I mean, by my calculations, looking at the U.S. population data, um, with the one in 200 um, threshold set by ACMG, I think it's less than half of 1% of couples in the U.S. general population statistics would be a carrier for the same condition, and which is the only case that's going to matter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, already you're starting off with less than half of 1% chance for this for a carrier couple to be identified, which is Still less than the chance that that couple would have a baby with this genetic condition. So generally, we're talking about pretty pretty rare conditions. But most people that undergo this testing are going to have a result that's flagged as significant for some reason and needs some kind of follow up.
0: Yeah. Well, the follow up it needs is to the first follow up it needs is to test the partner,
2: which often doesn't
0: happen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, that can, that can be a challenge and particularly a challenge if uh, the the patient is already pregnant you know because time constraints coming into play and so on
2: we could use more looking at why that is that people don't follow up right I mean I think that there's some a, a lot of uh, discussion about how do we get the couple um, tested at the same time I mean I found that a lot of people don't end up bothering following up testing the partner when they understand what that residual probability is, and it's just not worth it to them to, to pursue it. And in in some cases, um, they may have felt that way from the beginning if they would have been given the, some inf- the same information when offered the test uh, to start.
0: So, so um, interesting point there. These tests, I think this ACMG guidelines are partly about pushing the insurance industry to pay for this testing, right, saying like, look, this isn't experimental, this isn't uh, a luxury item, this is what everybody should do. Uh, Right now, my understanding is, and you guys do some work in prenatal so you can like fact check me here, that most of the time there's out-of-pocket costs for this testing.
2: I think there's out-of-pocket cost, or I think that what the insurance companies are paying for is some, you know, some set of CPT codes that they don't recognize as expanded carrier screening, that they might be billed for the CPT codes for cystic fibrosis and SMA or Fragile X screening. So, um, so patients might not be paying out. Insurance companies may not, may not be aware of what they're paying for, or they may not care. They may say, okay, we'll pay for cystic fibrosis and SMA and give the patient whatever information you want. I'm not sure about that, but I think that's how it often plays out,
1: you know. And I can certainly say, in in my experience, um, you know, the getting coverage for the mother is not typically a problem. It's just when it comes to testing that partner, and whether or not the partner has insurance, um, if their insurance will pay for the testing you know, based on the ICD code that we put on there, you know, it, it, that and, and then just the practicalities of getting that person who may not be in front of me, that partner, um, you know, to somebody to get that testing done. Do we need a referral? You know, just that part, it is very, um, it's difficult. And I think often couples look at that, possible risk and certainly think this is not really worth my trouble. And I'd really agree with Katie in terms of if the, you know, appropriate education was done prior, that might stop some of these couples from going down this rabbit hole. Um, but, you know, but maybe not. I You know, you don't know how, of course, people are going to react. But it, it's just, you know, when you're faced with you know, someone who may say, you know, we're going to do this testing to see if your baby could be at risk for these, you know, horrible diseases. It's very hard for someone to say no, you know, and unless they really have that deeper thought and look about it.
0: And you, you also, these tests don't separate out. I mean, they're not giving you the option, the commoner ones, the less common, there are a one size fits all situation, which is how they keep the cost down. So, if you want to find out about CF or sickle cell yeah. or something that's top of mind, you're going to find out about hypophosphatemia too. Mm-hmm. You're, you're you're going to get that. Right. right. I'm going to just digress. Because I have the story? I had a patient once who, uh, found was, was coming in for a prenatal visit for something else. And it was fairly late in the day in terms of getting, getting into the second trimester and, um, we discovered at that at that visit that she was a sickle cell carrier, uh-huh. and uh, uh, her her guy, the father of the baby, was there with her. But so, and we said to him, "So, do you happen to know your status?" And he said, "Yeah, I think I might be a, a sickle cell carrier. I think my mom might have told me I am." And so immediately there was this giant rush, and we like were all springing into action. And this young woman who was i don't know 14 weeks pregnant or something it was clearly scary information she responded by literally putting her head down on the table and going to sleep
1: oh my goodness it was like the, y'all figured it out like i'm gonna just like,
0: up. <laughs> i'm gonna just dip out of here folks it was really <laughs> right <laughs> i was like i totally sympathize with you and kind of wish that that was my reaction to stress all the time like it's something just, really good agitating good. just hey mom i'm just gonna like take a nap right here on the table Anyway, okay, Uh, past that. So there was the other criterion here as well for what goes on the panel. And I think this phrase is doing a lot of work severe or moderate phenotype. And that is, it feels important that they're trying to draw a distinction between things that belong on the panel and things that don't belong on the panel. Because certainly putting something on a panel is a big statement. Um, but uh, I know that you, Katie, had a lot of concerns about how they were defining that severe to moderate disease.
2: Sure, so um, I guess to begin with, um, ACMG states in their guidelines that they use public, published definitions. I mean, I think they recognize that there'd be some, uh, you know, some different Thoughts about how to define severity. So they reference these pub- published definitions, which, just going back, was a single study from a testing laboratory that surveyed um, healthcare providers in their database, um, mostly genetic counselors, some physicians, uh, to, to bucket conditions in, in different categories. And so this is these con- this kind of ranking of severity is what's made its way into the ACMG guideline. Uh, So they list out profound as uh, leading to a shortened life expectancy or intellectual disability on the same plane, uh, death in infancy or childhood or just intellectual disability. Um, Severe um, as being death in early childhood, impaired mobility or uh, malformation involving an internal organ. And then moderate was neurosensory impairment, immune deficiency or cancer, mental illness or dysmorphic features. So I'd say a pretty broad uh, um, not <laughs> to define uh, what's going, what can be included in this ACNG guideline about conditions that should be considered for re- reproductive decision making.
0: So, uh, you know, this is not a uh, an unfamiliar um, point of tension is the word I usually use here, um, um, where it's kind of the, carry screening is the first step in a process. It's not very useful by itself, right? It's the first step in a process that involves deciding whether or not a condition is so serious that you would end a pregnancy or avoid a pregnancy to not have a child with that condition. And that frequently throws us into a place where we're we're in a position of defining things that are or, or at least giving people the option to decide that that's that serious. So do you have a problem? I felt like in the blog post you expressed concerns about.
2: Yeah, that. I mean, I guess, I, I guess my concern just thinking about ACMG laying this out there in this way is that now, um, I mean, anytime we're talking about offering somebody a test with the purpose of reproduc- in influencing reproductive decisions, you um, it's not. It's not value neutral. I mean, we're saying we're implying something about what we think about that condition and whether or not it should influence somebody's decision whether or not to have a baby that may be affected with that condition. Um, so I think that's. I mean, that's. It's pretty big um, to to try to define this. I think that some of the concerns that we raised in the DNA exchange was, you know, for one. Uh, the ACMG has been called to task in the past for not including voices outside of ACMG in the development of these guidelines, and that definitely was the case for this one too—that there weren't patient um, or or um, perspectives outside of ACMG to define this. And I think when we're when we're talking about making policy that will in, you know affect everybody in society, I I wouldn't think you'd want some narrow group. I wouldn't think you'd want to be the small group of people that's making that decision. Um, I think you'd want to have uh, more stakeholders and voices at the table when deciding what should be included on a panel like this. Um, I think also, I mean, part of the criticism with our, with our um, piece was just about the emphasis on diversity, equity, and inclusion and not considering people who are living with genetic conditions or any of the conditions that would fall under this umbrella, right? Um, intellectual, disi- from intellectual disability to um, to mental illness, to dysmorphic features. I mean, what's can, what can fall under the umbrella of dysmorphic features? And these, there was not consideration of the impact of guidelines like this on people living with genetic conditions and disability.
1: You know, and not to, um, not to make light of your point, but... You know, even hearing about it and you know thinking about it again um, in this moment, you know, I I recall back to you know training as a for to be a genetic counselor and in that class, you know, where you learn about dysmorphology and you know at just about any moment as we we're talking about differences in the eyes or on the hands, you know how everybody in the class is looking at their eyes, looking at their hands, and you know undoubtedly somebody in the class has. What are those features, they don't even have a syndrome per se, but, you know, to, to make a judgment based on dysmorphic features, even, you know, kind of in that light example, but I think it really shows the seriousness of the impact of this type of policy and the importance of having true inclusion um, and having those voices at the table. You know, because even that value of what is severe, what is moderate, it not only is, you know, influenced by someone living with the condition, but even different cultures. Um, And so to have the disability, you know, community represented, the advocacy community represented, um, different cultural, you know, aspects of our society represented, all that was just really critical to have at the table. I hope it's something that you know other Katie and I have talked about this, you know, to ha- I hope other groups are learning <laughs> from this process that ACMG has been through to maybe
2: make that effort. I've I've been thinking about like what bodies should be the ones, I mean, who could organize this group right. of stakeholders to come up with um you know with a guide with guidance around reproductive carrier screening that might you know, I guess, feel more inclusive of um, different perspectives. And I, I just thinking back to the cystic the rollout of cystic fibrosis carrier screening and and many, I think we're all probably old enough to remember how that went went uh, played out. But um, this was kind of a big deal. The NIH hosted this consensus development work group that included multiple stakeholders, and there was a lot of deliberation, not only into what would be included in cystic fibrosis screening, but also what education the obstetricians needed and what kind of follow-up patients should have. And, um, you know, even with all of that, you know, th- thought and care that went into deciding about cystic fibrosis care screening, um, the initial panel of mutations that was initially included um had a variant that turned out to be a polymorphism, and we didn't know that until after we rolled out this carrier screening program, even with all of this um, care and attention. And um, the NIH is apparently um, uh, retired this consensus development process, but I feel that we need some something like that, again, to approach these issues with regards to reproductive genetic testing. Um,
0: well, I, I felt in the post that you wrote, you also mentioned, uh, I don't know if you sort of made any accusations, but you mentioned quite pointedly that the published documents that their conditions are based on were produced by counsel, which is is subsequently been bought by Myriad, was a, a expanded carrier screening company. And I felt like you were suggesting that there was a conflict of interest in having the carrier screening companies defining what belonged on the carrier screen. I
2: well, sure. I mean, count, I mean, the 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 labs that are defining what should be included are gonna are gonna benefit from ACMG's um, agreement with that. Um, yeah, there's a conflict there for sure. Um, I just think it's really interesting, too, though, as far as, like, referencing published guidelines or published uh, criteria for what we define as severe enough to include on a carrier screen is um, to to track back to one um, survey by a lab that asked their customers what they thought. It's just that's really remarkable that that's going to shape what's offered to people um, and maybe what will be covered.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But it's, 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 there's difficulties at all ends of this because I just think of a a friend of mine have this beautiful little girl who uh, has a very, very rare form of long QT syndrome. And they have some big decisions to make about what's the best care for her and uh, real big open questions about, um, her heart's ability to support her as she grows right so this is non trivial at all life or death situation and there's like nine people with this mutation that they know of in in the in the world in ever and they just really can't give her any good advice on it and one of the things they absolutely don't know is how many people have this mutation and have nothing wrong with them whatsoever so, obviously, this is the kind of super rare thing we're not going to be knowledgeable enough. So, there's one set of questions of, like, how do we handle all the conditions where we might have created a standard of how serious the condition is to go on the panel, but we don't really know about these ones, right? We don't really know. We don't know the carrier frequencies. We don't know the typical history of the disease. We do not know. So, that's one question do we do we err with uncertainty by sticking it on the panel and letting people decide when they get the information? Or do we say, too little information on this, it's just a source of anxiety? And both of those seem to me like fairly reasonable ways to go, right? So that's number one. I don't know if either of you have an opinion on that.
2: Do you remember, Laura, I, I wrote a post on the DNA exchange Um called Would You Rather on top of expanded carrier screening? And I had a survey that probably was mostly answered by genetic counselors. And and the the question was, would you rather counsel an expectant couple that their pregnancy will have a rare genetic disease based on results discovered through expanded carrier screening, only to later learn um, that that variant actually was just benign? Um, Or would you rather um, look at a more targeted screening panel that evaluates for only more common mutations that have been proven to cause disease Um, and it was split about one-third to two-thirds of respondents in the way that they kind of fell out on that, which I thought was really interesting. Um, But, I mean, this... this, The two-thirds, the the two-thirds would rather... Two-thirds of genetic counselors or two-thirds of respondents said that they would rather counsel based on a more targeted panel where we actually can give information about the variants that we're speaking about. Um, And one-third said that they would rather... Counseled based on less clear information. Um, I, wanted, I, I wanted to give a real life example that came up recently for, um, for a patient in our, in our practice in which they had a carrier screen. Um, and it came back saying they had a, they were a carrier for a genetic um, condition. And then about seven months later, There was a revised report issued to now show that there was a second gene mutation that wasn't reported in the first one because the variant was considered a VUS, but they had new information to call it pathogenic. So um, seven months later, the patient gets a report that says actually you're a carrier for two things. And then about seven months after that, a new report was issued to say, hey, that original mutation we told you you carried, we downgraded that from pathogenic to benign. So you're no longer a carrier for that. (laughs) And then three months later, the report was revised again to add a new mutation that wasn't reported previously, that was previously considered to be a variant, and now the lab was saying they had new evidence to call it pathogenic. So, I mean, if you're looking at the span of this in just terms of a pregnancy, if you're seeing somebody pre-pregnancy or in the first trimester and you report out, you're counseling them about them being a carrier for something, talking about partner testing, you know, they may elect to proceed with diagnostic testing or, or whatever, you know, steps they may take based on that information. And then, sometime after their due date, um, they get a revised report that actually, oh, that mutation actually doesn't cause disease at all. Sorry about that. You know, um, but by the way, did you know you're a carrier for something altogether different? And, um, I mean, this is this is happening. It's it's an experiment in real life.
0: 'Cause I'm I'm feeling a lot of sympathy for the person who's making that fourth phone call.
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, was, I, I, my, receiving this fourth phone call. It's it's wild. Yeah. That's why well, I mean it's literally
1: like <laughs> that sounds like the wild, wild west. Like we are really exploring. We're on this you know, it's wonderful to be on the cusp of all these new you know new information new discoveries but to I, I one of my biggest fears is this aura of certainty <laughs> when there is not you mm-hmm. know and even when you look at i know the ACMG if i'm not mistaken you know, kind of started to shy away from giving residual risk but when you see these residual risk tables and it looks like the information we have is so precise. You know, you come back negative and you have the specific one and, you know, complicated number behind it. It makes it look like this is just based on such good data. And then when you really delve, you find that not to be the case. Um, you know, it, it's it's just really disheartening.
0: Barb, when you were talking about um, self-free DNA <sighs> character screening and the introduction, mm-hmm. Not that many years ago. And and by the way, I believe the answer there is actually exactly 10. Um, and I was just laughing to myself because if you work in this field, you know what I mean. And if you're thinking about working in this field, welcome to a world where 10 years ago is basically like <laughs> middle aged history. You know, you're like, I remember children back 10 years ago when we didn't have these, things, you know, so that's how life changes super fast for us. But one of the semi-comical result of that is we're forever at this moment of, like, remember how stupid we all were five years ago when we thought this and we thought that and this and that crazy and we knew nothing and we were so foolish and remember that? And, like, now we know everything. Like, I feel like we're <laughs> almost, like, thank goodness now we've arrived in 2021 and we know everything, you know? Like, how. So,
2: School and how are, how are we going to feel, though, when we come in back and we know people, people are making life-changing decisions based on information that we know so little about? I mean, that's going to happen across the, across the field. It's, it's, it's a big deal.
1: And I think, you know, uh, Katie, you brought up such a good point in your piece um, in the DNA exchange around DMD. And I think and many of us are familiar with that. But things that we
0: knew that we knew
1: are now in question.
0: Yeah. That yes, yeah, DMD where they're finding a much higher population incidence of genetic changes that theoretically would be positive to give someone DMD, that's much higher than the rate that we see in the population. So something's yeah. wrong, yes. wrong about what causes the disease in certain cases, or um, there's a lot of people out there that carry these changes and for some reason protect yeah. it.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of adult men walking around out there with DMD mutations that don't have a dystrophinopathy. I mean, that they they don't, and and the labs know this because they're seeing this in their carrier screening results. But we're not seeing publications on this fact. So what we know is the providers that are talking to our patients about these results is 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 uh you know through the through the filter of what's being given to us, which is not always really complete.
0: Really interesting, Katie, because it is true. Like the only publication I've seen on this was from Semaphore, who basically were like, yes, they all have DMD, you know, it was a very... Did, Did they
2: publish it? I couldn't find it. I mean, I saw them present on this topic and they said, oh yeah, we're seeing way more carriers than we expected. We're seeing it in adult men that don't have DMD, but I still haven't seen it published. And I've seen DMD positive results come from other labs as well. And Following up, they're all reporting a carrier frequency around 1 in 500 to 1 in 600, which is way higher than what we were, you know, what we would expect um, yeah, the based numbers, on population frequencies. But I don't think they
0: want to publish. i mean, so I don't remember honestly. I remember seeing the results. I don't know whether I heard them in a report yeah. or saw a poster or whatever. But no, they don't want to because it stresses this condition, this, this yeah. situation that we're talking about here, which is that our information we have to give back to these couples is not as good as what we want to pretend it is.
2: It's not Uh, just a simple blood test that's going to make you feel such peace of mind about the health of your baby.
0: Right, right, right. (laughs) Right.
1: You know, we're all in being in the field, you know, we can be relatively nimble to, you know, be open that, this type of thing can happen. You know, we understand that genetic studies in the past were done in people that had disease. And now that we're doing testing in individuals that are, you know, ostensibly healthy, we're seeing all kinds of things that are different than what we thought. And we may have some, you know, understanding of how that could be, but how that translates to other healthcare providers is, you know, a big problem. I still you know, I will say here in my illustrious institution at our medical school, but I will say that you know some students are still being taught that X Y you know 47 X Y Y, which we you know know does not, um, it was not associated with criminal-like behavior now, but was thought that in the past. And many teachers, (laughs) medical students, still think that and don't have that same level of flexibility or nimbleness to that new information. So I can only imagine with something like, you know, this information around DMD coming out that we may know that and maybe, you know, we as genetics providers may know that. But how about those non-genetics providers? That's what really concerns me about these kind of guidelines, because when they get, you know, rolled out, that's opening it up to this broader audience?
2: So
0: I'd like to do a couple of summary points because we're reaching the end of time. From what you guys are saying here, I feel like more care about about maybe less emphasis on adding more and more and more conditions to panels and more emphasis on curating the conditions so that we know we have good information to give out about what we test for. I, I think our Conver- our my my guests here agree on, on that point, more care taken uh, to include all voices, including voices from various disability communities, plural, uh, in defining what goes on these panels, which because that ultimately becomes a statement about what we do and do, do not think are serious or intolerable conditions. Um and I'd just like to add and 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 uh, maybe a little bit more um, care uh, that there's no conflict of interest in terms of who's setting up those guidelines and and so on and and this is what there's a couple other overall summaries that I take from what you're saying here um that I don't know if there is a solution for because the fact is. I don't know is sometimes I don't know how this will present itself is sometimes information that parents might say, yeah, that's what I want. I want to know the thing that you don't know. And people often have very little tolerance for uncertainty. So we might be saying, like, don't rush out and do anything about this because we really don't know how it turns out. And they might be hearing us perfectly and saying, like, you don't know how this turns out. I want a pregnancy where I feel very certain that I know how this turns out. So. That may be more our thing than their thing. Mm -hmm. Um, listening to you. I'm wondering, I'm like, well, but how many people do I know? They're like, well, you know what? Probably this doesn't result in Duchenne's, but why would I want to have a maybe Duchenne's?
2: You know? Yeah. You're shaking your head,
0: Katie. What do you think? No,
2: I think that's a great point, Laurie. I mean, I think it's a really good point. I guess one thing I'll just say, maybe a little call to action to the labs then, because I think that You know, I think back to the cell-free DNA screening comparison here, and the first positive cell-free DNA um, result I had, which inspired some previous writing on the DNA exchange, positive, um, positive for Down syndrome, and on the test report, I kid you not, it said the sensitivity and specificity of the test was 100%, 100%. And so, me trying to talk to the patient and explain that this is a screening test, that it's not diagnostic. I felt like I was up against something that looked very official and in writing and impossible to be true. Like what I was saying could not be true. It did not, it did not fit with what they were seeing on the lab report. Same thing with this DMD example, what it does not look like there's, the variability is not clear. It looks like if you have a boy who has this mutation, they are going to have some spectrum of disease here. And I think that we don't, I think that you have to read between a lot of lines to try to say, okay, we don't know what to expect. And I, I, am, um, I, I, think, you know, Barb's point that we the general OB community is not ready to try to make these kinds, to try to make these types of interpretations. They're going to be reading what's on the lab reports. I think there needs to be a lot of care in how information is being reported about what we know and don't know. And it's going to make it look a lot more complicated than, um, you know, it's, and, and maybe harder to sell as a simple test, but I think it's really the responsibility of the labs involved in this to be to be honest about that.
0: Katie and I'm going to take the last word to tell you this story. I use you as my example of how ad- advocacy and getting out, getting information out there works, because Katie did write a series of two or three excellent posts on the DNA exchange, which turned out to be break it down summary about the fact that they weren't giving positive predictive value and positive predictive value was the one piece of information we really needed. And they were essentially hiding that because sensitivity and specificity sounded more impressive because it was up around 100%, whereas the positive predictive value was not. And Katie wrote this up. And a number of people, including a number of individuals who had had this experience, some some of them had gone on to have abortions that they then found out there was no uh, changes in the fetus that they should have been uh, concerned about. So and then a reporter who worked at Boston Globe picked up on her column and contacted the individuals from the questions and wrote a piece that had a big headline about people having abortions that they regretted based on inaccurate information and the next week congress happened to be reviewing uh, they they met with the executives from the labs that produced nips testing and armed with what was really katie's information that had filtered down into the boston globe they pressured the labs to start adding positive predictive value to the test. And I think now that's pretty standard, right? But I firmly believe that your, you know, blogging, move the dial on that. So, you know, makes me feel like the things we're doing here, it can feel a bit like an echo chamber. We're talking to each other. I agree with you, Barb. You know I you know I agree with you, Katie. Like I asked you on because I think your guys are so insightful. But I do think getting this out there uh, can actually make a difference. So I encourage you guys to keep on being the great advocates that you have been for our community and anyone else who's listening out there who says like, you know, has an experience like you did to find a way to be public about it. If you if you think you have a finger on something that is harming patients in the way it's presented or the way it's discussed. Um, okay, that's a bit of a soapbox, but hey, it's my show. <laughs> Thank you guys so, so much for, for joining me here today. And Thank, uh,
2: you. Thank you so much for that, Lauren. I know you got the last word, but I, I do want to say I've never said yes to being on a podcast, and I only did because I was hoping to be able to advocate about all the craziness that's happening with uh, Expanded Carrier Screen right now. So thanks for giving me a platform to have a voice there. Very grateful. Same to you, Barb.
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for this time. I've, I've really appreciated it.
0: Yeah. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invite. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invite.